Recent studies are showing that up to two in three dogs and cats are obese. That's like over 60% are obese, fat, too big, heavy, weighing a lot more than they should be weighing. In fact, some Banfield pet research recently revealed that overweight and obese dogs and cats in the United States has increased 160 to 170% in the last few years. It's, it's flat out reaching epidemic status. And it's not only costing pet parents like us lots of money, it's frankly costing our fur kids their lives. Just like in human, too much weight creates a whole slew of comorbidities that put your health's, the health of your pets at risk. So on today's show, very important stuff that we're going to be digging into. We're going to talk about pet, pet obesity, how to identify it, how to reverse it, and how you can help prevent it in the first place. So to start us off, we have an incredible guest. I'm really excited about it. Dr. Deborah Linder, the head of Tufts Obesity Clinic for Animals. Welcome to the show, Dr. Linder. Hi, so great to be here. All right, I'd like to start off, if you can talk first about how you, in particular, started working with obese pets and making that your focus. Sure. I actually love working in obesity because it's the one area we can not only treat, but we can also prevent too. So it's really nice. A lot of times what we're doing in medicine is, you know, doing our best, trying to add a little quality of life. Uh, But this is one disease that we can really stamp out if we Mm -hmm. do it the right way. So that's why I love talking about this. And I love pet owners to be as informed and possible, as informed as possible, uh, so they can do the best for their pets and they can lead longer, happier lives. Yeah. And I was mentioning to you just before we started this interview, I mean, it's a big thing in human lives too. Uh, Frankly, it's not just a pet obesity city epidemic that we have here in the United States. It's, it's everybody's too fat. And I know from myself, having lost a bunch of weight recently, what an amazing difference it's made in all of my life. And a lot of those things that my doctor were saying, hey, this is going to kill you. They're no longer on the table for me. I'm, I've got a, a long look ahead of me now that I'm really excited about. Same for our pets. So I want you to tell us about, you know, what specifically are you guys working on at Tufts Obesity Clinic that's really exciting that people need to know about? Yeah, a few different things we're working on. Um, One is just making sure that pet owners are as informed as possible. So we actually have a website, petfoodology.org, where you can go on there and find out anything you want about pet nutrition, how many calories your pet should get per day, you know, how do you how do you feel your pet to figure out if they are overweight? What are the first steps? What pet food should you get? All things like that, which is great. But then we also really like to do research too um, to make sure that you know we're on the cutting edge of things like that. So a lot of the work I'm doing is looking at what's the relationship between people and their pets and how does that play into whether the pet becomes overweight and how we can best treat that. So a lot of, a lot of interesting things uh, that we're looking at here. Well, let's, let's, let's kind of pull that all apart. So let's start first with, you mentioned, first, let's identify that, hey, this is a problem with my pet or not. I mean, a lot of us, we can mm-hmm. certainly look at the fat cat and go, oh my God, that cat is fat. But then the, yeah. there's a difference between those cats and those dogs that are clearly pudges and those that are, yeah, they're really overweight. And, and I think we make a lot of excuses for our pets, much like we do ourselves. But what are those ways that we can tell, nope, your, your pet is overweight? You're right. It is really challenging, especially with different breeds of cats or dogs. Some can be very, very fluffy. And so (laughs) I hear that a lot. Oh, no, he's just big boned or that's just all fur. So the best way to do it is we we call it the feel test. You have to feel over your pet's ribs. 
And the trick is to figure out how much fat is there right next to your pet's rib cage, right on their side. And the best way to figure that out, whether your pet is that healthy trim weight or not, is feel over the back of your hand. And there should be no more fat padding on your pet's ribs than there is on the back of your hand. So that's what an ideal pet should feel like. And that's, you know, getting below the fur and (laughs) really feeling, not pressing too hard, just lightly running your hand over their ribs. That's exactly what a thin pet should feel like. If it's more than that, uh, definitely time to talk to your veterinarian. Yeah. And and I know that for for me, I I look at, you know, the same as with humans, they say, if you're this tall, you should be between this weight and this weight. And and that doesn't mean a lot, I know, for humans, because you can have somebody who's an an athlete and technically on those charts, they're overweight. So is there something to be said about how active your dog is or or not, and, and whether or not you're going to be able to feel that same thing, or is it just going to be a rule of thumb It's always going to be like that? Yeah, unfortunately, because breeds come in such different shapes and sizes, activity levels mean that pets need all different types of calorie amounts. Mm-hmm. So instead of having, you know, a set, this is what your pet should weigh, we focus on that body condition. And the best way to do that is feeling the actual fat pads on okay, the pet so, itself. But activity is great for them. Right. Well, and clearly, I mean, we have two incredibly active dogs in our house, mm-hmm. which is great. I have friends and family who have very inactive dogs and, and yeah. so there's a, there's a different caloric need, but if you look at the back of your, the dog's bag of food, it's like mm. generic. So how, how do I, as a parent, pet parent go, okay, how much am I really supposed to be feeding them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, well, for the two things about the back of the bag, one is it's a big range and it's assuming your pet is very active. So I always say start on the lower end of that feeding range that they recommend, but also you should be doing it based on the weight that your pet should be, not necessarily on the weight that they are if they're mm-hmm. already overweight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be a little tricky. If you're wondering how many calories your specific pet should get, that's another thing actually that we have on our website too, where you can say, this is how much my pet weighs, this is how much they should weigh, and it'll say, this is how many calories they get per day. So how do you calculate in things like treats? Because I, I look at the, the, the bag or, you know, if I'm feeding raw or whatever, I'm, I'm weighing it. But then there's, then there's the treats throughout the day, which is part of life as it should be. Do you then need to subtract what those treats are going to be or how do you how do you manage that? Yes, that's exactly. That's probably why your pets are trim because you, you're already thinking about, do I subtract those calories or not? Uh, yes, we say, you know, of the total calories your pet gets per day, there should be a treat allowance of up to 10%. And I actually like that. I think it's good to add variety and let, you know, pets have a little special time with you, but keep it in check. Um, mm-hmm. So if your pet, you know, for example, the average cat needs maybe 200, 250 calories a day, they should be getting no more than 25 calories in treats per day. Yeah, and I wonder too about, I mean, and we talk a lot on the show about automatic feeders and the treat dispensers and things mm-hmm. like that. I think that those can be both a, a blessing and a curse. Partic- the ones that could be a blessing, I think, that are exciting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about them, are the ones that actually are helping you dole out the exact amount and are tracking that kind of stuff. Have you guys done any work looking at those and their effectiveness? 
That's something I recommend a lot to my clients. Not necessarily the ones where, you know, the food is available all the time, but there are rotating ones mm-hmm. where you measure it out. And then, you know, especially for those cats that bug you at 2, 3, 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. in the morning, <laughs> if, you pet, if you set the timer on that feeder, and so they will get exactly one third of a cup of food at 5 a.m., you'll be surprised. They will leave you alone and start scratching the feeder at 4.45 in the morning. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's a trick that we use very commonly to get rid of begging and seeing the people as the source of food, and it should be the, the machine instead. Okay, so now I want to get like a little bit of tough love because uh, I have some listeners who, and I, I won't call them out by name, but I'm going to email them and say they have to listen to this so they'll, they'll know I'm calling them out right now. Yeah. Those that say, oh, come on, it's just a little bit extra fat. They, 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 are, they don't get a long life anyway. I want them to enjoy it. What's it going to hurt? What is it going to hurt? Like, what are these comorbidities that we're talking about in, in dogs and cats? Oh, yeah, it's so challenging. Um, they can get so many of the same diseases that we get. In the different literature reviews out there, there's not one body system that is not impacted by extra weight. Um, in cats, most commonly, we see diabetes uh, come up very commonly. In dogs, joint issues. Um, it's really painful for them. We even have a study that says if you keep them trim, they actually live two years longer on mm-hmm. average. That's amazing that we can get more years of their life with them. And that we also have studies saying when they lose the weight, their quality of life improves. You know, I personally have clients saying, you know, we have to build fences now. We didn't even know our dog could jump like that. (laughs) He's like a puppy again. Um, Yeah. Just because they're getting the weight off. They don't, because it kind of slowly adds on all the time. You don't really realize what an awful impact that's having on your pet until you start to reverse it. I I totally, and I'm thinking of some specific animals that are in my extended life that, you know, the the pet parents like, oh, they just lay around and sleep all day. They don't do anything. And that's why they're fat. And I'm thinking, well, I think that they're maybe laying around and sleeping all day and don't do anything because they're fat. Uh, Because (laughs) I know for myself, I've been obese and it's, I had no energy at all. And the more weight I lost, the more I'm like, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a hike. I'm excited. I'm, I'm more energetic. So why wouldn't they be? Yeah, I do like to dispel the myth that, you know, walking your pet is going to be the magic trick that gets them to lose all those pounds. Um, It's just like us, you know, the walk to the mailbox or the sniff walk around the block is not going to burn off the thousand calories of a bone you just gave them. (laughs) So unless they're running, you know, 5Ks with you, I do think it's really important to keep them active just because that's it's really helpful for their mind. It keeps their bodies active and their minds active, but it really comes down to calories at the end of the day if we want to watch their weight. Fantastic. This is all really great stuff. I would love it if you could outline exactly where people can go and maybe the, the, the important tools that they should look for first on your website. Definitely. Uh, so running the obesity clinic here at Tufts, one of the things we really like to do is get as much just starter information out there <laughs> for people. So the best place to start with is petfoodology.org. Um, and any questions you could have, even if you're confused about that field test, like how exactly do I know if my pet's overweight? We have a video on there <laughs> that can help oh, walk you through it. Uh, we also have things to think about, you know, how do I know how many calories my pet needs per day? What should I do if my pet is overweight? Uh, tips for, you know, best thing to do is start getting a good diet history. Just write down everything you feed your pet, and then you can talk to your veterinarian about where should you start making cuts or changes from there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Lender. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, stay tuned, pet lovers. We're going to talk more today uh, about how to keep your pets felt and healthy. And I tell you what, 
while you're waiting, why don't you and your dog run around and place in the room for a few minutes? You know, burn off a few of those calories that you just had from those treats that you're taking while you're listening to this show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, pet lovers. We just finished chatting with Dr. Deborah Linder about how you can identify pet obesity in our furry friends. And now we're going to be joined by Dr. Ernie Ward. He's a very well-known veterinarian. You've probably heard him and seen him. And he's also the founder of the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. And he's going to talk to us about the weight loss programs and the work that his group is doing to help pet parents combat pet obesity. Welcome to Pet Lover Geek, Dr. Ward. Oh, welcome. I, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And as I told you, I'm slightly obsessed about the, some of the stuff that you're doing on the website, which we'll get to in just a minute. <laughs> but I want to far, start first about why did you find the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention? Yeah, you know, that's a great question and a good starting point. I, I did it because there wasn't anything like it, quite frankly. So in 2005, you know, after many years of sort of complaining and whining within the industry and, and my colleagues, you know, about, you know, prevalence data and awareness issues. Uh, basically, I took the challenge. Uh, he was uh, later president of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, a uh, professor down at University of Georgia, Steve Lutz, uh, Butzberg, who's a very dear friend of mine, an uh, important mentor in my life. And he, he was like, Ernie, why don't you quit talking about it and do something about do it? Do something so, about that it, yeah. actually that's, that's actually what led to it. And, and so in 2005, I founded the, uh, the organization. You know, we were really fortunate to have a great initial board of people who were just as enthusiastic and passionate about it. And really, our goal was simple to, one, measure the prevalence of pet obesity in the United States. Number two, to raise awareness around the issues of obesity. So that's, that's really what we've tried to do. Yeah, and I, I have to tell you, so I, I, I was totally geeking out on just just some of the the graphics, the infographics that you have on some of the statistics that you've come up with over the years, and what just strikes me is this discrepancy between what you know the average pet parent thinks and what veterinary science thinks uh, about what's healthy, what's not healthy, what should we doing, what should not doing. And I would love if we could dig in to a, a few of those misconceptions that are out there that are actually making pets more obese. So let's let's start off first with one of the questions that you asked uh, parents in some recent surveys was, do you think corn is healthy for dogs? And 6% said, no, yeah, it's healthy for dogs. But everybody else is like, no, 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 corn isn't healthy for dogs. But that's not at all what veterinaries, uh, professionals think. And why is there that huge discrepancy? Right. And it's a great starting point for a myth and misperception. So before I answer any of these types of questions, it's important that people listening today understand that nutrition is perhaps the most inexact science that we have because there's so many variables involved, so much individual variation based on your genetics, mm -hmm. your individual metabolism. Heck, even the, the bacteria present in your GI tract all influence your nutritional needs. So when we talk about nutrition in general, remember it's an individual issue, not just one that lends itself to these are the rules. You know, you need this much protein and this much fiber. It's just not that simple. And so the, the issue around corn has been confusing for many years. And, and really, if you look at the digestibility of corn in dogs and cats, the science, the evidence is clear. Dogs and cats can metabolize corn. Mm -hmm. What the misperception is, is that ideal? Is that healthy? Is that a good thing? And that's where you get the mixed messages because clearly 
some of the pet food manufacturers have vilified corn in the public arena. And that's why you see the vast majority of pet owners go, no, corn is terrible, it's bad, it's whatever. But yet veterinarians are reading the scientific literature and they're saying, well, I don't understand how it's bad if it's digestible. And my answer to this is one of the reasons that we dug into that question this past uh, survey, and we have some even more interesting data coming out later this year, but we wanted to discover, okay, where are the pain points between pet owners and veterinarians? And mm-hmm. then how can I help the veterinary profession overcome that? So here's one that's clearly identified. Corn is viewed by many pet owners as bad. If we want to overcome that for whatever reason, we need to address corn specifically. And getting back to that, is it good or bad for your individual pet? It depends, right? I mean, there right. are some dogs that do really well on corn-based, grain-based diets, and there are others that it's a complete dietary disaster. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is where you have to listen to your body. You have to sort of pay attention to your own food beliefs and nutritional philosophy. And so the issue wasn't for me or our organization to say that corn was good or bad. We just identified that there's a discordant response or opinion on that. So, again, I would say to you, if you're listening, you say corn is good or corn is bad, don't stop there. Have a conversation with your veterinarian and say, is corn good or bad for my pet's specific need? That's mm-hmm. really the question that you need to be asking. We're just trying to better articulate messages for our profession. This is one we need to do a better job with. Right. And I think, you know, it, and first of all, it's kind of like some people are lactose intolerant and some people are not, <laughs> you know, so it's right, every, right. every one of us are different. But I think it's really key that people not be so willing to swallow the Kool-Aid of the marketing that's out there. Because like you said, if it makes sense for my business to vilify corn, I'm going to vilify corn. But it doesn't mean that it's it's really should be the villain. So it's about listening to your veterinarians and working with them and as a team and everything like that. I'd like for you, the, the one of the things that came up in one of the infographics that you have on the site is about a study that was done by the AVMA in 2005 about these two ways of feeding. So one group of Labradors was fed normal amounts or, you know, what's on the back of the bag, you know, range. And then the other group was fed fewer calories. Can you talk a little, because the findings of this were, were, I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense at all. It It really is. It's one of the foundational studies when it comes to longevity, comorbidities or diseases associated with excess feeding or weight. And so this was funded by Purina. And so this is often referred to as the Purina Lifetime Study. But again, you know, they just were the ones who had the resources and the ability to do this study. So they basically took two colonies of Labradors. It is, it's a very elegant scientific study, really, really well planned. I've just, one, again, the foundational benchmark studies. And so they you know, these were dogs that were from similar litters. They have lots of genetics similar. So they crossed, you know, so one group was fed, as you said, a normal amount of calories or what they wanted to, you know, the the normal amount they wanted to eat. The other was just fed 25% less of whatever that was. And basically they wanted to see at the end of the day, did they live longer? Did they get more diseases? And wow, the, the, the results were staggering. In fact, the one I always like to tell people is that, you know, when, when you look at when all of the normal fed dogs were dead, okay, so there's two groups of, of 24 dogs. <laughs> when all of the control group are dead, nine of the 24 dogs fed less food were still alive. Yeah. And that is shocking if you think about it. So, so 
almost half of the dogs who were fed 25% fewer calories were still living, you know, had fewer diseases and pain and so forth. Their quality of life was higher when all the other dogs are dead. And that was, that was one of those things that you had to tease out of the data. And in fact, if you look at 13 years old, so if you look at Labrador retrievers who made it to the age 13, which is quite remarkable in and of mm-hmm. itself. I mean, mm-hmm. most labs, you know, are going to die between 10 and 12. We want them to be 14 or 15, but that's just the reality. So only 4% of the control dogs were alive, and yet half of the dogs fed a little less were still alive and thriving. So again, this study is amazing. Now, the, the interesting thing about this study is several years later, in fact, I think it was about four or five years later, another pet food company called Waltham, which is part of Mars, mm-hmm. which makes pedigree and Nutro and all those other types of foods. Royal Canin is part of that group. They duplicated the study and found almost identical results. So the net, net result that we tell people is that, you know what, dogs, if they're fed a little less, kept lean, you know, don't, they're not allowed to become overweight or don't develop obesity, they're going to live two to two and a half years longer. But again, more importantly to me isn't just how much longer they live, but that they lived with less osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. less cancer, higher quality of life. Really yeah. important. I think it's fascinating. And, and, and as you mentioned, you've got, you've got newer studies that are going to be coming out in, in the next few months, and, and we're definitely going to be looking at that, and we'll share, share about those things. But just in general, I mean, we don't have that much time left, but just in general, when people are looking at, at obesity or whether or not their dog is, is going to be too overweight, or what, what's the core that they should be taking away? Because at the end of the day, food is love with animals. We know this. Our dogs and our cats both they look to us as like the the food is the wonderful part that we give them all the time. And they lo- that's clearly part of the bonding. So how, how do you work with pet parents to help them understand that, that, that this can actually be harmful to let them get this big? Right. And first of all, I would say we've misinterpreted the dog and cat language because right there we've said food is love. Mm-hmm. And actually to dogs and cats, our interaction, our affection, our time is love. So what they're actually seeking is mom and dad, the pet parents, to do stuff with them. Mm-hmm. When we don't give them our time to take them on a walk or go play, I mean, all those things that are built in with guilt, because we know that we should be doing that, that's when we reimagine this as food, as love. So mm-hmm. we take the easy route out. We give them a dog <laughs> bone or some treats or whatever. Yep. But really what animals are seeking is us. And so that's why I always say, every time you feel the need to reach for a dog bone, ask yourself, could I or should I have played or taken for a walk or just petted? That's really what they're, what they're desperately craving. Yeah, definitely. Go out and get, burn some calories instead of giving some calories, and they'll, they'll probably love you more. It just takes a couple of minutes. Honestly, yeah. you know, it's, it, but it's that, it's that mindset of saying, and what am I actually substituting here? And again, I always say replace confection with your affection and that's oh. really the secret to a great relationship i love that tell people where they can uh find out more about your organization yeah definitely i mean we're a 501c3 we don't have any corporate sponsors there's no pet food companies involved we're the only neutral independent agency like this uh petobesityprevention.org fantastic and you've got a lot of really great articles on there too it's a really great site so much thank you so much dr ernie ward for coming on the, today's show Wow, thank you. All right, pet lovers, I hope you've got some really great useful tips and advice today about how to prevent, identify, and treat obesity in pets and keep those puppies and those kitties healthy for long, long lives. I thank everybody so much for coming on the show and chatting with us. 